Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name is Tom Rablick. Thanks for joining me for this podcast. We're living in pretty turbulent political times at the moment and we're seeing a range of things that are um, quite um, quite disturbing emerge from all over the place, whether it be events in China, whether it be events domestically, and also uh, the nature of political discourse. I'm joined today by someone who knows a lot about this. He's been around for a very long time. He's a respected journalist and author, Channel 9's political editor, Chris Yulman, who will take us through some of this uh, material today, as well as sort of probably provide you some food for thought. Chris, thanks for joining me. G'day, Tom. Now, viewers, readers and listeners track us at different points in time uh, in our careers. Um, there'll be those who only know you for what you've done on Channel 9 and for what you've said on Twitter. Uh, would you mind giving people a pricey you know, of your career? What would it look like on the back of an envelope? Oh, late bloomer, some talent, an enormous amount of luck. Gets uh, starts at the camera times at the age of twenty nine, goes on into the ABC, into broadcasting, Parliament House, and then on to Channel Nine as political editor, political editor also at the ABC. So I feel like I've been extremely fortunate uh, in the time that I've been in journalism, which is now the last thirty years. Why did you, why did journalism appeal to you? Was there any other profession you wanted to get into? Well, when I left school, mate, I joined a Catholic seminary and was there for three and a half years before realising that wasn't the job opportunity that I was after and then emerged <laughs> into a recession and I did a number of things. I was a storeman and packer. I was a security guard in the western suburbs of Sydney and they didn't seem like great career options either. And so finally, at the beginning of 1989, I packed all my worldly possessions into a 1969 Valiant and headed to Canberra, which is where my parents were and, uh, and got a job as a copy kid at the Canberra Times at the age of 29 and thought, as I watched people around me work, I could do this. And that's how I got into journalism. It's an interesting story, Chris, but also the life experience must also contribute to the way you you look at issues. Um, do you find that when you write and when you, when you report? It, it actually really does because, you know, that period of time I spent particularly living in the western suburbs of Sydney and particularly during times of recession, I think of what it was like sitting on that dock as a storeman and packer uh, back in the 1980s. I think of what it was like patrolling Mount Druitt Market Town and I think of the people that I knew then and the lives that they led and what was really important to them. And then I think about some of the stuff that we report from day to day in federal politics. And I do know that none of them will be worried about the things that we worry about. What worries ordinary people or you know, people that aren't inside the Canberra bubble is, you know, how are they going to feed their families? How are they going to pay for their existence? What are the things that will secure their lives and their livelihood? How can they lead happy and healthy lives? Sometimes the stuff we discuss here is so removed from that as to be on another planet. Is this part of the problem with the disaffection with politics that, that, that it tends to be, um, people tend to be self-obsessed um, in the political environment and they, they forget who put them in? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that one of the things that, that you know, I'm constantly reminded of is that many of the issues that we debate, not all, but many of them are really removed from people's lives and their livelihoods. And I 
do think that we tend on occasions to get stuck inside a certain, you know, a certain story or a certain issue that while it might be a purient interest to some people in you know, the political sphere and perhaps some people beyond, it almost doesn't resonate at all with the rest of the country while they get on with going about their business. And by the way, you know, I get, get some people, it's quite remarkable the number of people that say to me, oh, you know, some people shouldn't be allowed to vote because they simply don't know enough about what's going on. I mean, the level of arrogance in that is just staggering. I mean, people everywhere are essentially interested in how they can they can lead good and happy lives, uh, you know, just because they're not interested in the things that obsess the political classes, doesn't rule them out of the rights to uh, to have opinions. The interesting thing about watching you and others uh, on television um, is that I'm well aware that the the minutes you spend on TV are nowhere near a fair representation of the work you do uh, outside of that short broadcast space you occupy. Um, when you start your day, what's the first thing you look for? What, what the, um, what, what's the uh, brain food that you consume to catch up with what goes on? So, you know, every day in, in some way starts the night before, you know, as you're leaving work with, you know, where, for example, the leaders are going to be the following day. One of the things about television, though, it, it is a large logistical exercise. So, so we actually need to know the sort of physical position of the leader of the opposition and the prime minister every single day. So it's some of it's that kind of stuff is like, where, where are they? What are they going to be doing? And of course, what they're doing and where they are tells you a lot about where they think the issues lie and or at least the kinds of issues that they'd, they'd like to get across. So there's conversations really the night before. I was doing the Today Show this morning, which means that essentially if I want to you know, get some exercise and get in here uh, by the time that I'm supposed to be on air, I, I usually get up around about five o'clock. I, I, I'd like to sort of see what's running in the papers, you know, so scan the headlines at least of all of the... Of the papers, I, I tend now just to really look for, for the issues that I know that, you know, I'll be dealing with. So I skip past the crime news and the business news and things and, and look straight at what's what's been running in, on the political sphere. Uh, and then really the, the, the guts of this job, if you're doing it properly, and sometimes it's hard to keep up, is to constantly be in conversations with people. So it is to be calling those people, um, you know, on both sides, on all sides of the political sphere, uh, who are, you know, busy going about their jobs. So it's lots of telephone conversations with people that say, okay, what are you up to? How do you think things are running? You know, the government wants to talk about vaccines, but of course, the best example we've had of government being knocked off its kilter is uh, all of the, the sex scandals and the rape scandals that have been ricocheting around Parliament House for three weeks now. It means that the government essentially hasn't been able to talk about the things that it thinks will resonate with the community and that's jabs and jobs. So, you know, that's that's essentially, um, you know, the, the daily task is to try and keep track of what's going on, what might be breaking. And if you have time, you know, and it's uh, getting harder and harder with all the different platforms, it is to be poking around, trying to find out the things that people don't want you to know. Um, the other thing that I've noticed and then you've, cause considerable, and I won't say angst, but you've, you've caused a bit of excitement recently on Twitter. How, how, much, how, how much has the you know, sort of Twitter, Facebook and type environment enhanced or detracted from, from news gathering? 
I think that there is a revolution that happened in 2007 with the arrival of the iPhone. I think, you know, history will show that was one of the great markers in the change in the way that media works. If you think about the cost of production, so before the iPhone arrives, really the big barrier to anyone who wanted to be a publisher or a broadcaster, the cost of production. I remember the Canberra Times went searching for a colour press back in the 1990s. And, and the, the, the costs of that press ran to the tens of millions of dollars to get the, the very newest colour printing press. You know, no one but a company could organise to do that. And the costs of doing television, you needed to have cameras, you needed to have people who could move them around, camera operators, you need to have satellites if you wanted to do international broadcasts. The iPhone arrives and all of a sudden the cost of broadcasting and publishing dropped to zero. So everyone is a broadcaster now. Everybody is involved in it. Now, there have been some great boons to that. There have also been some enormous problems that go with all of that. And really, one of the biggest problems I see is, is Twitter is the best example of it. Twitter is the sewer of the internet. There you'll find some good information and an enormous amount of dross. But more than anything else, you'll find personal abuse in spades as people who believe that they should dominate the cultural conversation, try to beat anyone else who doesn't agree with them out of that conversation. I really rarely actually engage on Twitter. I throw things up on it and every now and then I do what I call poking the bear, which is just to throw something out, which I know will obsess them for the entire day and then shutting my system down and not reading another word of it. Uh, is this where um, uh, top of the morning sewer, sewer rats comes in? Absolutely. Like the thing is, <laughs> I have seen some of my best friends and by the way, quite a lot of them, uh, women bashed in the public square. You know, I'm thinking about people like Lee Sales, for example. My friend Jane Norman, who was who was at the uh, on the receiving end of the most scurrilous campaign to try and raise allegations about her, which are completely the invention of some fettered mind. I watch this stuff happen all the time by people who brand themselves progressives. You know, this is the progressive class. This is the left, by the way, that's conducting this cultural bullying that I see going on. So uh, I have no qualms in describing them that way because that's the way that they behave. And if, you know, I spent, my father was in the army. I moved every two years. I was a little fat kid who had to move playgrounds in primary school. And in each of those primary school, I got beaten up by whoever the local bully was and, you know, cowered in fear in each playground until I finally turned up in one in Canberra, stood up for myself, got beaten up again, but thought at least I have some level of self-respect now, you know, at least I'm not running away in the playground. And so I've always loathed bullies and that's what these people are. And uh, I find them appalling. I've, I've observed some of that. And it's something that, that I wanted to touch on with you because, you're probably uh, amongst the people who does commentary and analysis in an interesting way, but then there's the notion of, of you know, pure reportage uh, that a couple of people have raised with me from time to time in discussion. And how much of what we do uh, in journalism today is analysis, is the conversation, is the the placing of things of context and a view upon what has gone on as opposed to straight reportage, Chris? Yeah. Well, look, the, everyone has a worldview, right? You cannot disconnect yourself from it. You are formed by your experiences through life. You know, nobody comes to anything in a completely 
objective way. There is some subjectivity. You know, I always think of that, that ancient saying, give me a lever and a place on which to stand and I will move the earth. Well, the reason that you couldn't move the earth is because you had no place to stand. But on <laughs> earth, all of us have somewhere to actually stand and all of us do have a worldview. And in, in any, that you know, you think about the news stories I do in the evening and if it's not a particularly big news day, the default position for commercial television news story is 90 seconds. I mean, I laugh out loud when people keep saying to me, oh, you know, you can't fit that in a 30-second grab. I said, when have you ever seen a 30-second grab on commercial television? You got four seconds for me to super you and then I'm looking for a reason to get rid of you. So all of what we do is about making choices and all of what you see is not the entire picture. I mean, that is the nature of, you know, of, of discourse. So, you know, there is a level of subjectivity in every single piece of news. However... I mean, that we, we would go back to what my first editor, Crispin Hull, said to me on the day that I walked into his office. He said, the two things I'm interested in are fairness and balance. You know, you try and strike those marks, you give people the chance to defend themselves, and you try and make sure that they have an equal opportunity to defend themselves, and that's a good starting point. Journalism is flawed, but I think that I haven't heard a better starting point for it than that. Now, an enormous amount of the other stuff that we hear, including the stuff that I do, falls into the commentary sphere. We are awash with that now. Like, you know, that that is everywhere in the political space. So uh, once upon a time, you would, you would have it clearly marked that something was a piece of news and something else was a piece of commentary. Yeah. And I think that, that that line is now really quite muddied. That brings me to the next issue. You mentioned that your first editor talked about fairness and balance and giving people a... a a reasonable crack it would be um i would not be doing the listeners to this justice if we didn't talk about uh the past uh, week or so that we've seen the story emerge um in relation to historic allegations that that, that involve a christian porter how uh, setting aside the allegations themselves um, have you seen the evolution of that story and also the population of and, and the function of social media in it. Oh, there's not a shadow of a doubt. There's been a, there's been a witch hunt with Christian Porter at the centre of it. You know, that there is, you know, the political hands in this story are all over the place. And, you know, I leave it to people to go back and look at those who have populated the stories in which this first emerged and ask them what their political allegiance are or what, what, what also, what axes they might have to grind. Uh, so watching a story, think to yourself when you're seeing someone, what is their connection in this story to a political party or a political grievance? And uh, people can go and find their own examples of that. But in the Christian Porter story, it is rich with them. So uh, there's, uh, there's a lot more going on here than an allegation of rape 33 years ago. This one in particular is being weaponized by the opponents of Christian Porter some people who have hated him since they were teenagers and some people have grown to hate him through the course of his political life and some people who are clearly and obviously his avowed political opponents. As I say, go and look at the first Four Corners program on Christian Porter and look at who is commentating uh, and, and see how they measure up against some of those markers. Um, and the role of social media, obviously, has been it, it plays out as well. I mean, it, it, uh, I should preface uh, this 
this question by saying everyone's entitled to, to commentary in the public square, but it's been interesting to observe the crescendo from uh, the Friday when the story appeared on the ABC website over uh, over through to Wednesday when Christian Porter appeared and the subsequent continual discussion. Hmm. Well, I'll say this to you. I mean, like, this is not a defence of Christian Porter, this next bit. This is in the absence of proof. So this is essentially an unknowable crime. It committed between two people, uh, alleged to have happened uh, 33 years ago, and one of those people is dead and the one the other denies it absolutely. So there is no evidence that will ever stand up in court that can convict Christian Porter. So in the absence of that evidence, people are saying there should be, an, and this is their term, an independent inquiry. Well, by its very nature, the inquiry into Christian Porter would have to have a lower burden of proof than the one that you'd have in a criminal court. So what is that burden of proof? Who gets to decide what kind of inquiry? Could it be a parliamentary inquiry? Well, no, everyone in parliament is obviously partisan. If it's a, some sort of quasi-judicial uh, uh, inquiry, could the Prime Minister get to appoint the person? Would that person be allowed, in the eyes of those commentators, to be a man? Or could it only be a woman? If the Prime Minister appoints, then surely the charge will be, oh, the Prime Minister's appointed his own man or his own woman. It will be a whitewash. What if some other body then gets to decide who the person is appointed. Well, who gets to do that? Because the Prime Minister is obviously not going to let go of it and any anything that Parliament might throw up would, of course, again, be accused of some sort of partisanship. What are the rules of evidence? Will they be heard in public? Will he be able or she be able to call witnesses? So when you look at all of this, I can guarantee you that if, if Scott Morrison crucified uh, Christian Porter at the front of Parliament House the call from some would be he did it too late. You know, in the eyes of those who are chasing Christian Porter now, he will always be guilty. And that's why you've got to ask the question about, you know, can he maintain his position in public life? Apart from the mental stresses of the thing, uh, he will face this constant drumbeat of the fact that he hasn't cleared his name. And the tragedy for him is he'll never be able to clear his name. There, uh, there's also something else playing out here from where I sit, and I'll make this the final question. I know you've got a lot to do and you've been generous with your time. We've seen uh, some curious polling results in relation to Anthony Albanese and, and members of the Labor Party, and uh, polling tends to portray the Prime Minister or, or give us a a number that says the Prime Minister is more popular at the moment than the opposition leader. How does something like the the the, the current discourse about you know, historical uh, rape allegations and, and, and similar uh, impact on the PM and, and the government in that context? It certainly can't help. I think that it tarnishes all of Parliament. And, uh, and, you know, yet, yet again, all politicians with the same brush that, you know, that it's all pretty grubby what goes on up here. In fact, I, I genuinely have always thought that politicians are a pretty fair reflection of the population, quite frankly. I mean, 
but no, nobody else has, has a camera following them around 24-7, asking them questions or peering into their private lives. If they did, then, you know, a lot more people would, would bite the dust. But look, it doesn't, it can't help the Prime Minister. The good news, Tom, is that people have stopped asking me whether or not there's going to be an early election. I kept saying to them, well, you don't know what it's going to look like in the middle of the year, do you? Might look good for Scott Morrison now. Uh, people forget that, you know, this is, uh, this is a very tight parliament, just became even tighter with a, another member of the coalition deciding that they're going to go and sit on the crossbench. So I've thought for ages that, you know, that, that put the polling aside, which, by the way, was stonkingly wrong at the last election, and Anthony Albanese is absolutely in the hunt with the, at the next election. It is very close. You can't see the future. You don't know what the circumstances will be. I think the biggest threat to the, the two biggest threats to the Prime Minister are not necessarily this scandal, but the dismount for JobKeeper and JobSeeker, which we're, we're seeing at the end of this month, we will see a rise in unemployment. Just in terms of how bad that is, that'll have an effect on the Morrison government and the vaccine rollout. If they get, if something goes significantly wrong or the population is disappointed by the fact that, for example, there's a variant and this doesn't help us in the way that we hoped, then I think the level of disappointment with the, with the Morrison government will be high and it will face a really tough battle to win the next election. Now, you are also an author. You've written three books. Have you got another one on the go? <laughs> Mate, I, I keep promising that I, I will never write another book. My, my co-author, Steve Lewis, is in the midst of, of writing one at the moment. I've offered some advice, but not much more than moral support on that. But I'm actually writing a children's book with my younger brother, Paul, who's an artist, and that'll be published next year by Walker Books. It's called The Useless Tune. And ch children's books, thankfully, are way shorter than adults' books. They are, um, I've been through the process of writing two books over the past couple of years. I fully appreciate the challenge. <laughs> Never um, again. Um, I, I'd, listen, I'd love to do, I'd, I'd love to sink my teeth into something on uh, on terrorism and extremism, given given I've gone through it, but it is a tough, uh, tough call. Where can people get your stuff if they want to look it up? Uh, in terms of the books and stuff, it's all printed by Harper Collins. So if, you, if you're looking for Marmalin Files, Mandarin Code and Shadow Game are the name of the books. But if you were looking for a, a cheaper way rather than buying all three of those, it was it was all re-edited into a book called, because it was based on the, tele, the, the television series that came after it. So Secret City, The Capital Files is the compilation of all three of those books if you were looking for them. Chris, it's been a wonderful, uh, wonderful opportunity to talk to you and again, a privilege as well. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, mate. No worries. Thank you.